0: Welcome to the Ad Astra podcast. Today we have with us uh, Darren Hayton, who is a well-known historian of astrology and historian of science. He is a professor of history at Haverford College, I think I have that right. Um, and he's the author of various articles and especially uh, in the book, um, The Crown and the Cosmos, uh, uh, about the, the astrology and Maximilian I. Welcome uh, to the podcast and thank you for accepting our invitation.
1: Thank you. Um, thank you very much for having me. This is, I really look forward to this. Hmm.
0: So we would start to ask you um how did you get uh, (laughs) into this
2: (laughs) how did you get to this topic
0: (laughs)
1: yeah so uh i was actually describing this to a a colleague recently and i think most of my projects that i've ever worked on start out as protest projects um they're 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 in some way meant to uh, or they they seem to start out from uh, a position of mm, how do I want to put it? Uh, making somebody uncomfortable. <laughs> Maybe that's the way I want to put it. Uh, so I ended up here in a in a long circuitous route that started out in chemistry and physical chemistry, and then moved from chemistry into uh, history and philosophy of science. Uh, and I did my graduate work at Notre Dame, which had. a a really traditional program Uh, and so as I was casting about for possible projects I thought which project is going to make my advisors most uncomfortable Uh, and and so uh, I quickly sort of realized that astrology uh, and the history of astrology would be one of those one of those projects now it has other benefits that particularly when the my book project that looks at late 15th, early 16th century, uh, and thinking about what are some of the scientific structures at the time that pervaded uh, society and culture, and how can I begin to analyze those in the way that we think of scientific structures today pervading uh, society and culture. And when I look back, the one that appealed to me, the one that seemed to have the tendrils that went out most broadly into intellectual, uh, political, cultural, religious uh, domains was astrology. It it seemed to have these these resonances that went so far and wide, and so I thought, well, then that's that's what I want to work on because that will give me a, a way of thinking about this past that uh, is more comprehensive, more uh, revelatory than mathematics or or optics or or some other narrower science.
2: And um, you said, and this is interesting, this has more tendrils around. So um, you, from the beginning, from the inception of your project, you identified that astrology had correlations or, um, let's say, Connections to many fields of knowledge. Is it right?
1: Yes, and I and I should say that uh, there are lots of and, and, and many of these people have been on your your podcast. There are lots of really compelling ways to to think about the history of astrology. Uh, my approach and the set of questions that I'm interested in asking uh, are are sort of lead out. I think from astrology narrowly and and try to think about the ways that. Uh, with the crown of the cosmos, the ways that people in late 15th, early 16th century Germanys were thinking about astrology as a, a body of knowledge, as perhaps an authoritative body of knowledge, a body of knowledge that could be contested, uh, one that could be deployed. Um, and 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 so I, I really am interested in the way that the, the tendrils of astrology reach out into things like university curriculum, uh, into the sort of the ways that political state uh, leaders, princes, and whatnot might deploy people who claim to have an expertise in astrology. Uh, so, in in some ways, I'm less interested uh, in the really nitty gritty nuts and bolts of of a particular um, internal structure of astrology, and more with those those wide networks of, of astrology in, in quotation marks now.
2: So oh, I have to ask, and uh, did your supervisor uh, <laughs> react uh, positively?
1: <laughs> uh, so I ended up with a, a couple of supervisors who were very considerate and and generous okay. in their in their guidance. There were a handful of other people who didn't end up being my supervisors, perhaps for good reason, uh, who were never particularly happy with this project because they wanted. Uh, they want to hear the stories of the history of astronomy divorced from astrology uh, or they want to hear how uh, you know with the rise of of observation and new mathematics in the 16th and 17th century we do away with things like astrology
2: yeah this is yes uh, that was like a narrative that was very um common some decades ago but really not so much now as you know
1: Yeah, no, it's really, I I think it's, uh, it was incredibly common, even probably as late as the 80s and early 90s. uh, And, and it has been, I think, for lots of good reasons, um, pushed aside, uh, rejected, in some ways, although it's, it's kind of a, a Kuhnian revolution, because the people who believed in that model of history uh, still believe in it, they're just slowly dying off, from, uh, <laughs> whereas <laughs> the people who have rejected it are, are, are younger and continuing to live.
2: <laughs> that's how science advances.
1: <laughs> that's, that's what Thomas Kuhn explained, and, and, and it seems at least for history of science to be true. <laughs>
2: yes, <Yeah. laughs> And still, um, although you apparently, from what you say, you seem to be very interested in the uh, political and cultural connections of astrology uh, not so much with the technical parts that this is our is a more our field yeah. but uh you are more into the cultural and uh, probably religious and social uh, repercussions of astrology but still uh from what i could understand you still approach it from the perspective of the history of science am i right
1: um so maybe you could uh explain what you mean i think so i mean i i i uh I approach, I try to understand uh, the, the workings, the internal workings and structure, intellectual structures of astrology, uh, the, the systems that get deployed. Even if I don't, when I end up writing something, I don't foreground that understanding. Um, I do insofar as I think it's, it's a meaningful, uh, a meaningful way for the historical actors to have thought about it. For what I'm I'm trying trying to do, uh, but I do understand. I do try to approach it as a astrology as a uh, body of scientific knowledge that purports to give us an understanding to convey an understanding of how the world works, grounded in rules of logic, uh, careful mathematics, observation, and 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 a sort of a. a development of method. Uh, so in that sense, yeah, I think it's it's indistinguishable from what we might call a, a modern science. Uh, it's just- uh,
2: yes, uh, science is a word that is difficult because when we say science today, we think of something and when we say 15th century science or 16th century, it is something different. So it's a word that we have to agree upon first of all, but yeah, I understand. I don't
0: understand. It is always complicated when writing. uh, We need to use the word science and it's always a problematic word, (laughs) history. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it it really is. I was was writing something recently and, and I kept getting tired of writing these long expressions that got around the problem that science got around or these long expressions that got around the problem astrology is another great example of this. If we use the word astrology today, uh, it has certain valences and certain connotations uh, and and distinctions and, and limits. And those don't map on in obvious or unproblematic ways to the way that somebody circa 1400 might have used the word astrology. And so it becomes very difficult to to talk about some of these categories without writing an entire paragraph that tries to, to describe what you're what you think you're trying to
2: exactly exactly <laughs> trying to explain what i'm saying is not this but it's that yeah uh, we do we do understand yes, completely
0: yes. <laughs> yeah. Every single paper every single work we have to Go again. Let's start again from the beginning. <laughs> <We're> talking about <laughs> blah, blah blah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this
2: is actually one of your fields of study and research. From what I could understand, the use and abuse of the history of science.
1: That's an excellent way to put it. Uh, yes, uh, I am. I am. Uh, I am quite interested in the way that the history of science. Uh, Again, like science in scare quotes, um, um, the way that that history is deployed today uh, in order to uh, achieve certain political or social goals. Uh, and, and I think history more broadly that gets deployed in, in a whole range of ways that are meant about less about understanding the past and more about using an imagined past to colonizing accomplish. the past. Pardon?
2: Colonizing the past.
1: Yeah, and using it for a very particular set of political agendas today. Uh, uh, and and I'm, oppo- I, I'm opposed to that use of history broadly, and even more opposed to that use of history of, when it purports to look at the history of science. Uh, and I actually think that astrology is an excellent, an incredibly rich way. To get people who uh, are 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 either through um, uh, naivete or through a, a political agenda are ignorant of the complexities of the history of science. I think astrology is really useful to get them to confront mm-hmm. confront the ways that that history is is much more complex and, and less linear.
0: Definitely, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a topic that. Um, it's omnipresent and it it um, it challenges the way uh, one perceive how, how the idea of science is understood uh, throughout time and then the shifts and all, the whole difference that that causes I think it's it's a it's a uh, I agree with you it's a it's a, a very good topic to 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 start um, and to make that change yeah
1: it's also uh, I, I think that uh and this comes back to your your first, my response to your first question, you know, astrology prior to, uh, I'll talk about the period I know past, which is prior to the 1600 or so. Astrology was everywhere in so many ways. Uh, some of them explicit, some of them implicit, uh, it structured the way people thought, uh, it structured what they did. It, it, it informed how they, uh, thought about themselves and about the world. It, it is just such a powerful object of study uh, to understand how people were going about their lives in the past. Uh,
2: and, and Absolutely. We couldn't agree more. Yes. Yeah, we yes. couldn't agree
0: more. Yes. As, as Elena um, you know, often puts it, it's like comparing it to, to our narrative today about genetics and DNA. And, and it's, it's there. It's our narrative. And perhaps. It's
2: a narrative. Yeah. The, yeah.
0: yeah. Perhaps in 500 years, people look back and say, well, there it is. How, silly How silly they were! How silly
2: they were! <laughs> <believe laughs> Atoms—they believe in atoms. They were silly. Yeah, probably, probably. <laughs> oh, no. But uh, it's the same with astrology. People—it um, it is very difficult, and I—it doesn't make sense to me—that people tend uh, look at history and specifically history of science, or if you prefer, history of knowledge, and they try to separate. They try to separate astrology from it and it's like trying to separate, I don't know, the humidity from water, it seems like. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's an excellent way to put it.
2: Because it's so much into into all the narrative of culture, Mm -hmm. not only only science, but also everyday life. We have examples here in Portugal of some songs written in the Middle Ages about uh, mocking people and uh, they were about astrology. It's not mocking astrology. It's mocking people using astrology as a device for sarcasm. Wow. So it's That's... kind of, and yeah. everybody understood the joke because everybody understood at least the basics of astrology. So, and this is middle Ages, I mean, like 13th century. So, um, so it was really part of everyday life and also part of education, part... Yeah of the um of, of culture part of cultural life so it is impossible to look at history and try to be blind at certain points so it is it is kind of difficult so yeah. the history of science uh, specifically will be oh well not will be it is already being um, rewritten because of this new approach on mm-hmm. astrology mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it, it really is, a, you know, the last couple of decades have have seen a lot of really interesting work on astrology, thinking more broadly about what astrology was and, and where it, it uh, sort of permeates, how it permeates society. Uh, I think we still have a lot of work to do. Uh, you know, if we take, a, you know, an example might be uh, to, to illustrate some of the work that still needs to be done. Uh, could be um, Bob Westman's book on Copernicus that I think to me compellingly makes the case that Copernicus was motivated by and large, if not wholly, by and large, by questions of astrology. Uh, and, and look at the response, the reaction that that book has generated uh, that tend to work really hard to dismiss Copernicus's interest in astrology in any way shape or form uh, so I think there's there's still work to be done um, there are still uh, there are still these sort of pillars of the narrative of the history of science that scholars are trying to insulate from non-scientific yes. inquiry astrology being perhaps one of them. Uh,
2: probably the main of them, because the, the reaction has to do with this icon of science, Copernicus, mm-hmm. and they don't want to see them stained <laughs> by astrology. Um, and um, uh, instead of thinking, oh, how interesting that this man, this interesting and very knowledgeable man, this mathemat- ma- mathematician also was mm-hmm. interested in astrology, how interesting this is. but. Um, We we know we have some heroes, and it's very difficult to reshape the idea. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And this happens with Copernicus and perhaps others. Galileo, yeah, yeah, Galileo. That's more or less Kepler. Kepler, maybe
0: Kepler. Well, they say
2: that Kepler was um, in need of money, and therefore he decided to lower himself.
0: (laughs) Uh, So yeah, so it's
2: it is so interesting because we try to import the way we see astrology today. Mm-hmm. into the past yep. and so they, they they think oh no they could not do this we have a few um, local examples here in Portugal mm-hmm. uh, also yeah. <laughs> very um, uh, chief one of the heroes of medieval times and the, he was interested his father was a priest shouldn't be his father but anyway was, a priest <laughs> and was interested in astrology and um and so people say, "Oh, this man—he was practically a saint. How could he?" You know. Mm-hmm. So we have we have a few, and this brings us to another very interesting topic: is that astrology is never—we are never indifferent to astrology. We either love it or hate it. <laughs> it's very yeah. interesting.
1: Yeah, that, that's an excellent observation because, uh, uh, you know, in some ways, we're never indifferent to any object of study. Uh, but there's a particular response that we have to astrology. We either love it or hate it, and consequently, excuse me, I got caught up on a wire. Um, and consequently, when people look at uh, the scholarship we produce, they either love us or hate us, depending on what they think astrology. Uh, astrology, what, what. How they think astrology should or should not figure in the, in the stories we tell. Uh, and so it becomes really difficult to... Uh, it becomes very difficult to produce scholarship on the history of astrology that isn't at first glance pigeonholed, confined to good or bad. Uh, and that's, I think, one of the interesting bits that, that your observation really brings up uh, about astrology. We either love it, or we hate it. We either love the people who do it, or we hate the people who do it. Mm-hmm. And it would be really nice if we could have uh, scholarship on the, the history of. We, if we could recognize that scholarship doesn't have to fall into "I love you because you're doing something good" or "I hate you because you're doing something bad."
2: Exactly, exactly.
0: Yeah.
2: And that would be truly scientific. We would look at things <laughs> in a way that is really um, objective. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah with it it's it's always uh, for, for example in in my current research i 'm researching the Jesuits and their relationship with astrology, which is something that as far somewhere in historiography, it has never been discussed they think no they they cannot practice astrology of any form unless something strange is was happening because they were. Uh, orthodox, an orthodox order, they wouldn't touch that thing, which was forbidden. And when you start looking at it, it's much more complex than it, it goes around and around much more than, than just oh, they couldn't do it; it's impossible. Uh, and there they are.
2: They couldn't. Yeah.
0: Sorry, go on. <laughs> And, and it's, uh, but you find this resistance in, in historiography in many instances, uh, which again, as we were saying, it's, it's no longer the same as it was decades ago, but it's there's still uh, initial resistance when you when we start uh, talking about these this topics, and of course, um, there's always a, a caveat that we, uh, when dealing with the history of astrology, have to always begin with every time, uh. uh Something that we can we will not have to do if we're doing history of religion or history of another weird subject or weird well, uh, let, practice. let me
2: say because I always say uh, this could be like um, a disturbing topic for some people, and we are always looked like in a certain way because we are historians of astrology. I always say this is more difficult, and we are received with more uh, caveats um but uh, imagine that i would do let's say something that is disturbing the history of cannibalism people would be okay with that
1: like,
2: like oh, okay the history oh how interesting and, and if it is astrology oh no so it's, it's funny that
0: would be funny oh, I'm, I'm, I'm studying now a manuscript which is 20 recipes <laughs> 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 right, and, and nobody would question that. They'd be like, "Wow, tell me more." Yeah, um, yeah,
1: exactly. Yes, so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> do you yeah.
2: do you use cilantro or what? <laughs> Right, right,
1: right. simmer, boil. Um. Yes, yes.
2: But if it yeah. is astrology, there's this. Now, it, that is also about the, um, I would say, the unique, um, the exceptionality, so to say, of astrology, because mm-hmm. it's science if you want knowledge but also yeah. it goes into other fields and s- specifically it touches everybody in a way or in another way positively or negatively but it no, nobody is completely indifferent to it mm-hmm. so this is the the way that yeah. uh, we have yeah. to deal with uh, with it yeah. uh, also with a little uh, sense of humor because yeah. otherwise
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely uh, but you're you're right it's uh, you always end up we always end up starting off with a a handful of, of caveats about our own positionality vis-a-vis modern astrology mm-hmm. as if that's an important factor in how we do or don't study the past whereas uh we don't ask the same of almost any other historian Oh, you're working on on the Catholic Reformation are you Catholic what's your position with Catholicism do you believe in the Eucharist exactly. we don't none exactly. of that is is even on the table for people oh exactly. you're a historian of, of military do you believe in killing people is that something you <laughs> have like to do uh so we don't we don't expect the same sort of uh, exactly Caveats from any other form of history, yeah. right.
2: or, or likewise, um, you study cannibalism. Do you eat people?
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, do you have a lab associated with this particular project? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Did
2: you feel this when you published your book on the, the crown and the cosmos?
1: Um, any,
2: any kind of rejection or something?
1: Uh. I don't know if I would say rejection. Uh, I did. I, 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 often thought about how do I, how do I particularly when I was sending out the proposal, how do I defend this project? How do I make this project, uh, sound like something, a, a legitimate press would want to publish. Um, uh, particularly since well I shouldn't say particularly uh, and and so yeah I, I did I, I and I spent a lot of time trying to justify that uh, look astrology in a very broad capacious meaning in a sense um, astrology permeated the 15th and 16th century if we're telling you know, I'm I was working on Maximilian the first if we're talking about Maximilian the first and we don't talk about, his understanding however rudimentary of astrology we don't understand maximilian Uh, that that's kind of at 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 base that's that was what was motivating the project was uh look you can't you can't publish on maximilian if you don't talk about uh, that's let me rephrase that if we don't have work that tries to understand maximilian's relationship to astrology again in some broad sense uh, uh then we haven't produced as full a picture of Maximian as we could. Mm
2: -hmm. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. In a sense, it's like history of astronomy, although sometimes some historians don't like uh, this kind of idea, but um, it's very difficult to establish a really timeline of development of astronomical knowledge and mathematics if you don't include its astrological use which was one of the main uh, uses for most of the more complex calculations involving astronomy and mathematical astronomy, if you don't include that that facet and you don't consider it, you have a big piece of, of the mechanism that's promoting this development that you're not getting and you're not talking about it. And until very, very recently, there has been always a resistance to 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 establish this connection and to admit and to assume this connection as natural, and as a historical fact, and and to study this this kind of development. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, you know,
1: it, it's. I think it's a vestige of the. Uh, I'll call it modernist historiography from the early part of the 20th century through the latter part of the 20th century that uh, wanted to. Tell the history of the genesis of the modern world as one that increasingly um, rejects superstition, uh, as one that increasingly embraces uh, what was thought to be objective science, uh, and and so you're absolutely right. These histories of astronomy, which in some ways are we we they aren't that distant from us. Um, we're still seeing. Uh, a number of them get put out that assume, uh, if they don't explicitly say, they assume uh, sort of a break, an intellectual break sometime in the 17th century uh, that produces a a modern scientific world. Uh, The explanations have become more nuanced uh, and more sophisticated, but they're still doing their best to bifurcate uh, the, you know, the expression history of the science of the stars, and bifurcated into astronomy and astrology. Uh, yes. And I think you're absolutely right, we can't, we're getting incomplete uh, mm-hmm. histories of astronomy. If we do that, if we try to try to dismiss.
0: Yeah, astrology. if even if, if, if the researcher is focusing mainly on the mathematical and, and the astronomical material, which is okay. It's the focus of that research, but still, it it must be
1: it said, discussed
0: at some point that mm-hmm. most most of that, most of that, is being used for astrological calculation. Even the person doesn't go into astrological practice itself, but but the calculation is there constantly.
2: It has to acknowledge yeah. it.
0: Yes, I, I find the same. For example, also in the history of medicine. I've seen many books on history of medicine where you search for a reference to astrology or astrological practice associated with medicine, and there are none. Though sometimes the word doesn't even appear in a 500-page book, uh, page book, so yes. it could be a, a small reference to it, because it might not be the, top, the main topic of the, of the research, but still... <laughs> It's strange. Yes. Yeah.
2: As a medievalist, I, I have the same. I have the same uh, situation. Sometimes I, I see books of medicine or books on encyclopedias, entire encyclopedias on medieval uh, knowledge, for instance, and there are no words, not one word, not once. So uh, today, uh, fortunately, people are not thinking like this. They are not. Uh, we are both in the history of science department in Lisbon. Mm-hmm. And they are not thinking like this, no. they think differently, and they, they acknowledge and understand the importance of astrology in medieval and pre-modern, in general, pre-modern in history, uh, history yeah. at least. Yeah. So, um, in, we are very lucky in this, in this sense, but uh, I understand that in certain um, situations, it's still very difficult to, 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 to think like this and to the, hence my, my, uh, my question about your book and just for context, I would like you to just very briefly explain the content contents of your book. I have it. So I know it, but just <laughs> uh,
1: Yeah. So uh, the, the goal, the, the book project was to think about and try to understand how Astrology, as a sort of a, a an authoritative body of knowledge, um, was deployed at Maximilian's Emperor Maximilian I's court. So this is 1490s through about 1520, um, 1530, and the goal was to think: uh, all right, How can can we see ways that astrology might have appealed to Maximilian? and his contemporaries as an, uh, as something that might be seen as authoritative, as um, persuasive, as part of a, uh, a political praxis. Uh, and what, what did that look like? Who were the experts? Where were they? How did they uh, receive support? Um, and so what it looks at is it, it starts off by, I look at a couple of the texts that Matt, the so-called autobiographical texts that Maximilian produced, uh, his Toyerdonck and his Weisskönig, uh, these allegorical poems, uh, to point to the ways that Maximilian himself was interested in astrology as a political tool. Uh, uh, and then looked beyond Maximilian to see what did he do in in real-world terms in Vienna and the environs, uh, to support people who claimed to be astrologers or to have astrological expertise. Uh, and I did this by following a, a handful of, of scholars who, m- most of whom came through the University of Vienna. Uh, they found support there when Maximilian uh, established a new college for poets and mathematicians. Uh, and then many, a handful of those, move from the university into the direct uh, sort of sphere of, of the court. And so I traced what they were doing, the paper instruments that they were producing, the curriculum they uh, offered at the University of Vienna, the, the ways that uh, again Maximilian and his court would have brought astrological experts into their fold so that they could make the claim, they, they Maximilian uh, could make the claim that they were using astrology to make decisions. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the assumption that undergirds the book is that that was a useful political, social, cultural move because astrology was seen by so many registers of society, dare I say all registers of society as authoritative. Um, you may disagree with the nuts and bolts of, of how a particular uh, bit of astrology was executed. You may disagree with some of the interpretive rules. You may disagree with what planetary positions um, meant in the end, but you didn't disagree with astrology being an authoritative body of knowledge. Uh, and so that's the the, Project in the book, uh, as it ended up between two covers. The project in the dissertation was a little more technical, uh, but it didn't that the technical bits didn't end up in the book. Uh, so, okay, mm.
0: pity. <laughs> pity.
2: We are very much into the technical.
1: <laughs> yeah. I I really enjoyed some of the technical bits, uh, particularly as I worked through some of the the calculations that were happening in in the university texts, but the editor at the press didn't think that it would find a, that it would help the readership. So Mm -hmm. I had to defer to the editor. (laughs) Yes.
2: Uh, And it is different. It's different one dissertation and a book for the general public. They are different. They have to be, they have to have different um, approaches. They have to be different. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, this is just for context. And uh, did you get um, some kind of response from the academic community?
1: Um, yeah. Uh, So the the responses tend to fall into uh, a a couple of different uh, camps. Um, There, some some people who read it, wanted it to be more technical, uh, and were uh, I think, yeah, wished it had been more technical. Uh, other people were perfectly happy with it being, a, a more sort of cultural, uh, um, study. Uh, and I think it really depended on, on what the, the person reading the book brought to bear on, on the book, and I'm okay with that. Uh, we, we, I think, I think it's it's great that we can have uh, different responses to different works. Uh, some people liked it, some people didn't, and yeah, uh, again, I'm okay with that. Uh,
2: <laughs> yeah. Yes, we cannot we cannot please everybody, yeah. but it is it is an important book because it brings this other part of uh, this period and this uh, the 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 life in Maximilian, not only Maximilian himself, but his mm-hmm. life and times, so to say. And uh, it brings this other uh, component, the, the astrology and everything that surrounds astrology, into, into the eyes of the academic community. So it's, it's very important. Even it could be more technical, it could be less technical. That's, that's really beside the point. It is there and it um, calls attention to this specific topic. That is, that is the important thing.
1: Yeah. And that was kind of the goal. It's not meant to be definitive, but rather to point out the ways that astrology as a a body of knowledge could be, and in fact was deployed uh, in the late 15th, early 16th century, uh, and to encourage other people to look more, more seriously at it. I I don't think that, uh, I think that what makes the book interesting in some ways is again I don't think it's an assumption anymore. We've seen a number of studies that that move it beyond assumption. That is, Maximilian wasn't unusual. He wasn't out of the ordinary. He he like everybody else at the time was committed to astrology and and used it to further his his goals. Uh, and and so, if somebody reads my my book and and is has some reaction to it, but is prompted to go study a different prince somewhere else and think, how is this prince deploying astrology, or where are the astrologers in this prince's court, or what are the the structures of astrology that function here? That's great. That's that. I'm, that's that's the goal of a book is to generate other scholarship.
2: And I think it did because it's it's um it's the kind of book that um um insights curiosity yeah. and uh, insights other further research
0: yeah it becomes a model uh, in a certain way a uh, of how to to approach the, the topic and uh and the basis <laughs> i think
1: you're, you're I, I you're very generous to say becomes a model um, <laughs> I, I would be happy if it just gets launched out there and, and it prompts somebody to do something yeah really well, i think it, I, I think it does i think it,
0: it,
2: it does, does
0: because it does. um I think anyone starting a research is always go, going to try to to understand how it has been done in the past. So someone who's trying to do court astrology will most certainly uh, have your book, or at least at some point reach to your book, and your book will, will give an approach, yeah. a certain yeah. approach. So it will serve as a model in one way or another, even if the person then decides to, based on what you've done, do something a little bit different, so that it approaches or or it's more specific to the case study. But it's still, I think, it's still it's still yeah. a model because there aren't that many um, that many uh, works on, on this specific analysis of the the use of astrology. Yes,
2: it um, also yeah. works like a seed. It's like a seed that you planted, and then other scholars would also uh, look at your book and develop ideas from from what you have written. Uh, it happens with us mm-hmm. and other people. So thank you.
1: <laughs> thank you no, for. thank you. Oh, oh, so glad somebody read it. <laughs>
0: <I> mean...
2: <laughs> I'm sure several people read it, read it because uh, we know of people who read it. So yeah, it was yeah. not only your your um your friends and family. <laughs> it was other people. I guarantee you. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, you know, I think for me, this project. One of the things the project was was trying to do was think uh, and this is, it could be related to at least what you were saying, uh, with respect to the history of astronomy. Part of the goal was to think, why would anybody, why would any prince have actually employed an astrologer? Um, uh, one answer is the astrologer promises, you know, some foreknowledge of, of something that's going to happen. Uh, and there might be some truth to that, but that doesn't seem as robust a reason as, or, or it doesn't seem to exhaust the ways and uh, that, that a prince might have employed an astrologer, um, uh, and by employ here I mean just bring into his his circle, um, and and so you know there's there's really good work that that follows uh, astrologers' particular predictions and and where those predictions might have happened and whether they came out to be turned out to be accurate or not, um, but that wasn't what this my project was trying to get at, my project was trying to get at, well, why would a prince have turned to an astrologer in the first place? Um, um, is there some social and cultural value that astrologers and astrology, astrological experts bring to the table? Um, now, at some level, I started from the position that yes, of course there is. The challenge was to to demonstrate some of the ways that 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 expertise could be Could be valuable.
0: Yeah, yes, definitely. And um, what about your your new projects?
1: Uh, (laughs) Right. So my my what I'm I'm spending far too much time on right now is Ptolemy the pseudo Ptolemaic uh, Chentaloquium or the Hocarpos because I'm interested in the Greek the Greek version. and here I'm I'm fascinated, I, my point of departure is in some ways, it, it, there are two points of departure. The one is there's almost no work on the Greek edition, the Greek version of Ptolemy's Chintiloquium. Um, there's a critical edition from the 60s, which like most critical editions does some things really well and other things really poorly. Um, uh, and, In many ways, uh, it, that, that critical edition is misleading um, in so far as it homogenizes the text, it makes it seem uh, uniform in a way that the text was not uniform, the individual copies are not uniform. Uh, and in homogenizing the text, it makes it more difficult for us to think about how the whole was actually uh, operative in historical moments in the past. Uh, so, part of what I'm thinking about here is a, an article by Tony Grafton a number of years back when he was, uh, I think it was on. He ended up chasing down a handful of of critical edi- editions, not critical editions of different 16th century texts and and Copernicus. And what I realized was all of these incredibly erudite editions that we have uh, are making it more difficult for scholars today to understand people in the past because those people in the past are not using modern editions, but whatever they happen to have in front of them. And those things in front of them vary often quite wildly. and so I started thinking about the Ho'karpos in, in a similar way, in part because there are, if we if we just think about through the 15th century, there are 35 to 37 surviving copies of this manuscript, which is a fairly large number um, for a century, uh, century and a half, the earliest ones, late 13th, early 14th century. um, uh, If we include texts, copies into the 16th century, we get well north of 50 or 60 uh, copies. Now, the latter ones you have to worry about because those are probably humanists who are kind of interested in fetishizing Greek texts. But it suggests, the numbers suggest that uh, there was a real audience for the Hokarpos in the Greek-speaking world. Uh, And we don't know what that audience is. We don't know what that, that context is. Uh, and so I, I've become really interested in in how can we, how can we think about the the hocarpus as a, a, a window onto a particular bit of, uh, in this case, medieval Greek astrological knowledge um, and where that was occurring. Uh, it's a the, Hocarpus, the It's a strange text uh, in the Latin world, where there's amazing work done on it, um, and obviously Jean Patrice, who was on your your podcast not long ago, has done some great is is working quite a lot on it right now, uh, but the Latin world does not always give, doesn't prompt us, maybe that's the way I want to put it, doesn't prompt us to ask the same set of questions because we have for so long understood the chintiloquium to be part of the university curriculum. So we don't have to think about where was it functioning and how was it functioning because we're like, okay, well, it's part of the, you know, in Vienna it becomes part of the third or fourth year of the arts curriculum. Uh, in Krakow, it, you know, we have known for you know, decades now all the places that it turns up in, in the university curriculum, often associated with the medical faculty. No. But we don't have similarly structured curricula in in the medieval Greek world. We don't have universities. Um, we don't have a, a wide range of, of educational institutions that share a curriculum quite like the universities did. Um, Yes, we have uh, the quadrivium, uh, but we don't always know what that looks like, and there's a lot of variability. So anyway, the, the Hokarpos becomes really fascinating to me because where was it? Who was who was reading it? Who was copying it? Uh, and how did if they did? How did people who read it and saw the variations or when they come across variations, what sense did they did they know that, that they were variations, or did they just get on with their lives? Um, and and some of those variations are are potentially significant. So, in some copies of the text, it talks about conjunctions of planets being particularly important to pay attention to. In other copies, it talks about opposition of those same in the exact same aphorism. It, when those planets are in opposition, you do X, Y, and Z. Um, well, those those lead us to two different sort of understandings of how the world worked. Um, uh, so this is a long rambling response to my current project. of. of I, I'm fascinated with this, this particular text uh, in the Greek. Yeah.
2: And uh, it is very interesting the way you look at it. How was this for them? Mm-hmm. Because we know what it is for us, but was it the same for them? How did they uh, deal with this um, and the differences and all yeah. the versions? Because this is something that this is seldom asked. And um, it's a very, very important question. How were they um, yeah. uh, actually dealing with this?
0: Yeah. 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 And, and this yeah. type of research is, is quite interesting. When, when you're trying to, to, to establish a genealogy of knowledge, um in, in that sense of the versions i was thinking for example even in the latin world which would work much more in that area um sometimes certain quotations or certain affirmations well ptolemy says this uh, and the versions that we have nowadays of ptolemy no longer say anything like that so what are they they, they reading what copy what um yeah. what edition even even in the printed editions you have that problem what is the edition that they're reading which one is telling us this which and which note which attendance so, so even yeah.
2: the order of the chapters sometimes yeah. diverges
0: so yeah.
1: right so um and, and the way you just put it luis is is precisely what tony grafton was getting at when he wrote that article it's now been 20 years or more uh 25 years uh, but he was chasing down a quotation, probably in Scaliger, because Tony Grafton has done everything on Scaliger, um, uh, uh, and and he turned to modern editions, but couldn't he, he couldn't find it. He's like the quotation's not here, and so then he turned to 16th century editions to start looking for, well, where was he getting this information? Uh, and and I think that's part of what's animating me as is, is thinking about well how is it that these variations that we have um smoothed out in a critical edition uh that these variations were actually operative uh that they were shaping and informing and coloring how people understood uh you know the text i'm, I'm doing this because there's a copy right here um uh <laughs> understood the text but understood more broadly uh the aphorism, because aphorisms are also fascinating little to me that it's a it's a fascinating form. It's meant to encapsulate uh, a bit of knowledge, but it's not a rule of thumb. Uh mm-hmm. it's it often depends on if you read the Ptolemy's aphorisms, they depend often depend on an incredible amount of expertise. Mm-hmm. Uh not always, but often. There's, in this particular text, there's no rhyme or read. They're not organized in any interesting way. They're just a hodgepodge of of, of different aphorisms, some short, some long, some uh, broad statements about, you know, the wise astrologer, others very specific statements about how your ship's going to get burned by pirates. Um, (laughs) uh, And and so it's it's an odd form that requires a, a a degree of expertise uh, and a, a social space that i think I'm, I'm just fascinated with how how i might be able to use this text to think about where was astrology happening in in the greek speaking world uh, and who was who was
0: working on it um, it is a fascinating project uh, I'm, for, I'm looking forward to see the results when can uh, <laughs> we uh, do, do
2: you have an idea when can we uh
0: uh,
1: no, I don't have quite an idea. I'm, I'm working really diligently on trying to get through uh, as many of the copies that survive as possible uh, so they can begin to catalog the ways that they vary. Uh, the, the And, you know, the critical edition already points to some of the families of variation, and that's all well and good, um, but there are all sorts of other ways that they vary. Uh, and thinking about what, do, how, how might I, how might I organize these these variations? So Luis, you, you point out that, off, you know, at times chapters, or, or maybe you did, Helena. Chapters are in different orders. Uh, a number of these copies actually invert different aphorisms. Uh,
0: yes, a number you-
1: of them used you know, invoke different planets. Uh, so, uh, you know, aphorism, uh, I thought I had an example here, I don't. Anyway, it might be aphorism 75 or something. Um, in a number of them, it talks about the sun being the operative planet and others it talks about Mars being the operative planet. Uh, but to think about what these, these variations might suggest. So I'm, I'm working through these. I don't need to get through all of them. I don't think I can, but I'd like to get to the point where I can have, I will have seen the vast majority. Uh, and if all goes well put together, I my, the initial project, the initial part of the project is to think about a different type of edition. Uh, one that isn't a critical edition, but rather one that provides uh, more of a history of the text mm-hmm. and might include examples from five or six of the different families of variations. Uh, so that you, you saw the, the ones that included the planets and oppositions, but also mm-hmm. the, the that included that aphorism that said when they're in conjunction, and then gave a little bit of, of the history of where did that particular, the one that includes opposition, where were those texts found? Um, so that we can think more robustly about the historical moments and places that might have encountered that version of the text
0: um, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. uh, and then I'm, I'm fascinated by a, a historiographic problem which has to do with, with critical editions, and that is a critical edition seeks to pro- provide the correct, the accurate pick your favorite word, reading of the text. But most of the copies of this text that survived don't indicate that the person who read that text understood anything besides the one in front of them as the correct version. Uh, and and so what do we do with that? Occasionally there are marginal annotations that correct a correct change a planet. Uh, a planet that's in you know, Mars becomes the Sun uh, in the marginal annotation. Uh, but in most instances it doesn't. Uh, and even in cases where i can point to a text multiple copies of the text that vary in the same library owned in this case johannes sambucus who was the imperial librarian in vienna at the time who had three copies of the text in the imperial library he established the imperial library he his greek was was excellent there's no evidence that he understood the there's no evidence that he read the three but there's no evidence that he understood the three that were variations to be variations mm-hmm. uh, yeah.
2: yeah that's very typical they just um use the books as um memories yes, yes. Yeah. for different things even though they are contradictory mm-hmm. and also regarding uh variations and contradictions because that's what we are talking about uh we often talk about this that books specifically books on astrology these kind of books could be, uh, well, they probably were like complements for oral tradition. So they require this context. Mm-hmm. So they were just like the memory of the mm-hmm. repositories of memory for students or writers, mm-hmm. and then they needed the other complement, which was the direct um, transmission from mm-hmm. student, from master to student. From yeah. so. Probably this would help clarify. Unfortunately, we don't have them anymore. <laughs> so, <yes. laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, I've uh, you know I've struggled with thinking about you know, in this case these aphorisms. Uh, you know, what is the? I, I it's clear there has to be some sort of social intellectual context mm-hmm. to make sense of them. Uh, what is that, and and how how can we think of? I I don't think I'll I'll. Discover the manuscript that says, "Okay, Ptolemy's Hocarpos was read in this context." In the that would be lovely. I doubt yeah. it. <laughs> uh, but if we if we look at it and we think about it in the you know the individual the copies of the Hocarpos in the context of the manuscripts that they're in the, the codices that they're in, uh, and and think about what's required to make sense of these, I think we can begin, begin to piece together some idea of what that broader social and cultural context might have been uh, mm-hmm. um, but maybe not but it's I, I think it's it's the existence of this text in Greek and the numbers that it exists uh, suggests to us that something interesting was going on that that there was a social intellectual space that
2: yes. Yeah, it was very quoted and very respected. Yeah, it, it, very.
0: It's, yeah it's almost yeah. Um, hand in hand with the, the Tetra It's um, it's there. When they quote Ptolemy, if they're not they're, there's no indication, we never know exactly if they're they're quoting from Tetra or from the centiloquium So and most of the time is a centiloquium I think the Centilocum happens to be more operative. Mm-hmm. In, 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 in more broad range in terms of astrological practice, much more than the tetrabiblos uh, because it will include facets of astrology which the Although, Although, if, if yeah. we
2: think of it the tetrabiblos is more, if you don't know anything about astrology you would want the tetrabiblos first yep. because mm-hmm. the yeah. Centriloquium would require some previous knowledge, yeah, quite solid knowledge for you to understand it Otherwise it's just,
0: mess. <laughs> it's just <laughs>
2: opaque. It's yeah. opaque for people. Just what, what <laughs> is this? So the, they work in different levels, yeah. I would say.
1: They, they absolutely do. And, and that's, I think what fascinates me is, is the way that the Centriloquium, the, the Hokarpos requires for so many of the aphorisms, astrological expertise that the text doesn't include. You have to come to it knowing a lot in order to make any sense of, of that particular aphorism, uh, which is no doubt why in the Latin world it ends up later on in the curriculum after you've been exposed to the Tetra and and all of the other astrological texts. You know, in, in Vienna it turns up in the fourth year of the undergraduate arts curriculum. Uh, you know, you have you've heard a lot on astrology before you end up with encountering the Chintilocuam. Uh, the Greek version of the text, is it, it, it's no different from the Latin in that it requires a ton of expertise to make any sense of. Uh, and that's, I think, what fascinates me. Who were the people who, who were conveying that expertise? Who were the people who had that expertise? And in what context? What were they doing and for whom? Uh, because it's, it's not, as you say, it's not a text that explains
0: itself. Uh,
2: no, no. It yeah. assumes that the reader already knows a lot, so yeah. I don't know. Yeah,
0: and it, it, and, it, and it prompts at least in the Latin world. i not. I don't know about the Greek one, but it prompts a lot of arguments and discussions. I'm always thinking on the the conjunction theory, uh, and the the the, <laughs> the would be the proof that Ptolemy uh, at knowledge the 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 conjunction the theory. The conjunction theory uh, of course we know it's not ptolemy but for them it is so uh and a lot of discussions that go on and i i, I particularly the authors i'm looking at that they are trying to argue that what is meant in the sect by conjunctions it's not conjunctions of jupiter saturn it's of the moon and then they go around oh, it's full <laughs> so they go around and around and so well, they're going off on a tangent just to justify their point of view, but it's still, it's interesting the amount of discussion and argumentation that that the book generates. Um, Yeah,
1: it it is. And and they are, you know, aphorisms, pithy, short. uh, They don't explain themselves. So they, in some ways they demand that that sort of discussion and debate because they're not immediately clear in most instances Uh, and and I think I would be surprised if similar debate wasn't occurring in the Greek world, the Greek speaking world. I just don't know where it was. And, and that is in some ways why I, I became interested in this text. It, The number of copies that survived suggests that in the Greek world, there was a relatively robust uh, interest in the, the text. And then suggests at least to me that there was a, a, a relatively significant body of people who had the expertise to debate it, to understand it, uh, to be concerned about it. Uh, And and so I think it's a great of course, I would think it's great because I'm working on this project. But I think it's a great opportunity. To sort we agree. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we agree. Just let me ask you a thing that I'm curious about. Um, do the copies you have are commentated versions, or you just have the text by itself?
1: So, in the the vast majority have no commentary. Uh, uh, occasionally, I'll come up with a commentary. Mo- occasionally, the commentary will be. In, it's there's a later Latin commentary added. Uh, but not terribly frequently there aren't even marginal notes added so uh, now and then marginal notes that might offer a different planet as I said earlier uh, uh, but for the most part they exist just as as the raw text the the short preface and the Somewhere between ninety-nine and one hundred and one aphorisms, uh, depending on how they get divided up. Uh, uh, so, I would love to find a copy that has a, a robust commentary. I haven't seen—I haven't seen that copy yet. Uh, so,
2: well, we never know.
0: You never know. Yeah.
1: No, <laughs> it's I, a- I was reading. I was reading a copy, reading, looking at copy this morning that uh, a late sixteenth-century copy. And the person who had copied it out uh, had marked, I'm only halfway through it now, but had marked imp- what he thought were important uh, phrases or, or terms, and then added a relatively robust uh, Latin description or commentary on what that term was, uh, which I found kind of interesting. Uh, but yeah. um, I'm, uh, I, I, I don't have a, I don't yet, I haven't yet looked at a copy that has a robust Greek commentary. Oh. Um, there are copies, and um, I have no, I, I don't have any Arabic, so I can't, I can't read the ones that there are. It's a copy in the Bodleian that has an Arabic commentary, uh, So, um, mm-hmm. as I've been told.
2: Maybe you can contact some Arabists. There are very good ones. And uh, you could compare your notes. Mm -hmm. That would be very interesting.
1: I I just this morning sent a note to uh, somebody who, if I recall correctly, told me he had photographs of that text. And he does Arabic really well. So I'm going to. He's not interested in the post, but he's, uh, if he's got copies of it, and if I can convince him to. Talk me through the Arabic. Um, <laughs> That's great. Uh, so.
0: It helps. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: uh, and that copy is a fairly early copy. Uh, you know, the there are no. Uh, you know, the earliest copy of this surviving in Greek is late thirteenth, early fourteenth century. Uh, so. so. it
2: is very interesting to compare because once I had this kind of an experiment, very brief with um, uh, one of my colleagues at the Warburg, uh, Liana Saif, who speaks Arabic. And we went to the British Library and I got this copy in Old Castilian of um, a book written by Hali Mm Ben-Rajal. It's a, a book of astrology. And she got, I got the Castilian copy and she got the Arabic copy of the same book. And we read some passages. I read it in Old Castilian and she read in Arabic. And there were some interesting differences. Mm. Very interesting. Uh, for instance, uh, Venus and Saturn, uh, they, they mm. were exchanged. Well, there were some interesting, it was basically the same text, but then there were some crucial words that were somehow changed.
0: Mm. And
2: this is very interesting. Uh, some things we can understand because, for instance, uh, reds and um, green, they sound similar in, they don't write similar in Arabic, but they sound similar. Okay. And probably it was like a translation, a dictation or something. But other words, we could not understand. And because we were in the British Library and we could not talk much, we had, you know, (laughs) but this was just, we did it just for, as an experiment, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. just in this kind of one hour or something, we detected a lot of differences. Mm -hmm. So it it is interesting for you to (laughs) see and to compare. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think it's, uh, this is a book that that, uh, is very challenging. Um, because I was looking at uh, some of my authors and because of the conjunction theory and the aphorisms that they would indicate in a lot of uh, editions, they're not the exact number. And I'm talking about Latin addiction, so it's a different uh, area of, a, of the same problem, but it's not the same thing. So I have to track down the editions and I don't know which book you're reading uh, and um, only the Arabic um, edition, Clarifies it a little bit more because the Latin is absolutely opaque. You, you, that could mean anything. And that explains why it can generate a lot of commentary and discussion because it's, it's an aphorism. It's like a riddle. You <laughs> can say anything, you can make whatever you want after that. It's not clear. And, but, not, but not the Arabic. I, know, I, know, I didn't check the Greek, but not the Arabic. So it's interesting to see these, these differences. Uh, yeah,
1: No, I think you're absolutely right. That the the aphorisms, the form of the aphorism, uh, in in many ways, almost requires a commentary, either written or verbal, because uh, they they can be interpreted often in in so many different ways. Uh, uh, it's. I think that uh, this this draws me into the the broader. Interests that I have in this particular project, which is the aphorism as a form of knowledge, uh, the aphorism as a, a way of articulating a, a, a knowledge claim, particularly in something like you know, the the chintiloquium or or these other spaces where that claim purports to tell us how the world works. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it's a claim about what really happens out there. Uh, yeah. And you know, we, don't, we don't have a similar pithy aphorism, aphoristic type form of knowledge these days. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't go into a physics class and, and hear these aphorisms spouted about, uh, <laughs> yeah. although it'd be really funny. We formulas. I, maybe
2: we have formulas. Yeah. <laughs> I don't
1: know. Well, maybe, uh, but mm-hmm. I, I think it's, it raises questions about, again, what's the form of knowledge that is being embodied in the aphorism and and why? Uh, There's probably a longer history to think about what what happens to that as a form of knowledge. Uh, You you can think about them related to things like sententiae or maxims or proverbs, uh, rules of thumb. uh, uh, The, you know, and they're they're different, all these short forms of, of knowledge Vary in different ways. You can't draw obvious, distinct, obvious, and hard-fast distinctions between a maxim and a proverb and a, 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 an aphorism. But uh, they do. There are variations. Uh, but I think that the aphorism itself, as a as a form of knowledge, is also fascinating as a pre-modern form of knowledge.
2: Yeah. Yes. Were they in some? Could they be in some form of rhyme that is now lost?
1: You know, I've I, I've wondered about about that is there how can i think about the uh so i I struggle with when i think about the the hokarpos. i think about this in a variety of ways one is how can i make sense of the order Mm -hmm. Uh, uh is there some mnemonic device that i don't get that somebody else did I, I don't know, but it it would be challenging because you'd have to it would have to be a mnemonic device that functioned in Arabic and in Greek and in Latin because they they tend to take a, a fairly consistent serial form in, in each. Uh, is there a rhyming again? Is there some other oral uh, aspect that that we're missing? And and maybe um, again, it would have to be consistent. Or uh, maybe it wouldn't have to be consistent, but I would think it, the challenge would be thinking, trying to find the one that was consistent across languages.
2: Um, or at least with the original, Because I, I thought of this because of the language, the Greek language and the, the, this idea of memorizing and singing history.
0: Yeah. Like
2: the, uh, you know, like the Odyssey and things like that. And they, they would sing, and they had these devices
0: mm-hmm.
2: to, or to, to complete the rhymes in, in the, so I don't know. Maybe something like that.
1: No, I think that's that's a, a brilliant suggestion. And, and a friend of mine uh, thought about something. Ask about something similar. Is there is there a, is there a performative aspect to this? Um, can we imagine this uh, these aphorisms as taking place in a performative space? Uh, uh, and and again, maybe It'd be, uh, I, I, I would love to find the manuscript. This yes, we went. We, we went and listened to a bunch of people recite aphorisms. Uh,
2: uh,
0: Let me explain how this works. And the
2: music, exactly, yeah, the music goes like this.
0: You no know, notes and, and uh,
1: yeah. That would
2: be lovely. It
1: would be. Uh, um, I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> but,
0: yeah, yeah, but but still, they're, they're all interesting questions to explore. Uh, well,
2: a lot of work mm-hmm. and. Uh,
0: yeah, well, we, hold, we wish you all, all all the success in the project. Thanks. And Thanks. We'll, it's, you're it's waiting. <laughs> yeah.
2: We'll be waiting.
0: <laughs> I, I hope that you will be able to see
1: something, uh, something concrete from it, within maybe a year. Uh, something
2: that specific. is lovely. That
1: that um, would be
2: very very good. Uh, mm-hmm. And well, we'll keep in touch.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'll keep plugging away at it. Uh, no. Yeah. We can't go outside because of the pandemic. I, I have no excuse not to work.
0: <laughs> exactly, no, no excuse. <laughs> yes,
2: none of us have excuses anymore. Yeah. We just yeah. have to work.
1: <laughs> exactly. Uh, and yes. we will,
2: we will be waiting. And uh, yeah, we wish we you all the luck with this. Well, thank part. you. Fascinating. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was this was. I really enjoyed this
0: conversation. It was great. Oh, thank
2: you for but, accepting. Yes. Me. It was extremely interesting. Yes.
0: And we hope to see you here soon, if not uh, before, in some time, some time around the year, with some more,
2: <laughs> with some more, effort, some
0: more to discuss on, yes. on this topic. Thank yeah. you. Man. Yeah, I'd love to. I, and 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 I look
1: forward to chatting further with you about this and where, and your work and any other projects that that percolate up.
0: Yeah. Thank right. you. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.